recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 25th, 2014. I hope my voice is up to par tonight. I might cough and sniffle a little more than often. I've been down with a cold all week. I mean, it hasn't got me down, but it, it's annoying. I never get sick, and I, I must not be eating as good as I thought I was. If these presentations are too pedantic or too elaborate, for those who are already well familiar with the basic Christian concepts, and especially Christian identity, I apologize. I decided that in concert with these presentations of the Epistles of Paul, I should offer as many basics of Christian doctrine as is feasible and possible for me so that the epistles can be as fully understood as possible, at least to the best of my own ability. So things that seem but really um, basic Christianity 101 material to a lot of my listeners, that they'll just have to understand that, that this presentation on the epistles of Paul has to um, ha- has to resonate and, and and has to be understandable by people at all levels of Christian understanding, not just the the um, the Christian identity longtime Christian identity students. Let's put it that way. This necessitates a comparison of Paul's teachings to the utterances of the prophets, to the elements of the gospel, so that the reasons for Paul's teachings are elucidated as fully as possible. This is because even among longtime students of our persuasion, there are a lot of misconceptions concerning Paul's epistles and especially among the Paul bashers and among those who continue to lean towards universalism. It is also true that the things that might seem obvious to some of us are not always obvious to the rest of us. Therefore, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a constant caution not to take it for granted that, that people are familiar with certain aspects of the prophets and the gospels. Therefore, it is good to illustrate as much as possible, no matter how how basic things seem or, or how laborious, re, laboriously repetitive certain things can be. With that being said, we will, we will commence with part four of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Discussing Romans chapter 2. We saw that the prophets of Yahweh announced the failure of the law of God on the part of the children of Israel because they refused to keep it. With that, Yahweh God himself also announced that the rituals, the ritual sacrifices, the feasts, and other works of the law conducted by the children of Israel would no longer be acceptable to him. Establishing these things, we cited lengthy passages from 1 John chapter 1, from Isaiah chapter 1, Hosea chapter 8, and Jeremiah chapter 6. All of these prophets, and there are others also, were found to be in agreement with Habakkuk. Paul had quoted Habakkuk in Romans chapter 1. He quoted 
Habakkuk chapter 1, where that prophet said that the law had failed because Israel did not keep it. And for that reason, the just shall live by faith, as Paul had quoted. We must always bear in mind that none of this is about the failure of God, but rather it is about the education of his people. With such an understanding, we may then perceive why Paul told the Romans, Romans 2.12, for as many as have done wrong without law, without law, then they are cleansed. And as many as have done wrong in the law, by the law, they will be judged. The prophets had also clearly foretold that the, that the dispersed children of Israel, who no longer had the Levitical law, would be cleansed of their sins by Yahweh apart from the law. So apart from Yahshua Christ, there is no propitiation for sin. And those many Judeans of the first century, and in the first century, there certainly were many true Israelite Judeans. Those many Judeans of the first century who rejected Christ would be judged by the law. For that reason, Christ told them that they would die in their sins. From John chapter 8, the King James Version. Then said Yahshua again to them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, I'm quoting the King James Version, Will he kill himself, because he saith, Whither I go, ye cannot come. And he said to them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Now his sheep, who as the Apostle John explains in his first epistle, are also born from above. His sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. However, ostensibly, any of his sheep who did reject him, who didn't have the opportunity to hear his voice, would die in their sins. His enemies, born of the world, have no part with him. It is therefore the truth of the gospel which separates the wheat from the tares. <clears throat> we see this very thing prophesied in Isaiah chapter 52, whereby we may also perceive that the enemies of Christ were not the people of God. From Isaiah 52, 6. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. Now, this is Yahweh speaking in Isaiah chapter 52. Yahshua Christ, Yahweh, manifest in the flesh, says, if you do not believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Why? Because there is no propitiation for sin outside of Christ. Now, we'll talk about his enemies and the law in, in, in a few moments. From Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful 
upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigns. So we see that this um, that this idea of his people hearing his voice, his people understanding that it is he who speaks, meaning Yahweh in the flesh, is directly connected to the gospel message. As Christ told his enemies in John chapter 10, but you believe not because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Many of those who rejected Christ were indeed later judged by the law, the law of the kinsman avenger, and the destruction of Jerusalem prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. Those who remain await the lake of fire. In Romans chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, Paul defined the just, where he quoted Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. He defined them as those of the dispersions of Israel who had the law written on their hearts, according to prophecies found in Jeremiah and Isaiah, and who sought to put that into practice. He commended the Romans for that very thing. Then, from Romans 2.17, Paul addressed the Judeans in the context of their adherence to the law, informing them that if they transgressed any part of the law, that they could not remain in the grace of God, that their circumcision would become uncircumcision. Why? Because there is no longer any valid propitiation for sin apart from Christ. Commencing with Romans chapter 3, Paul explains the advantage of those Judeans who had the circumcision and the word of God and nevertheless states that their lack of faith because they rejected Christ would not nullify the faith in Christ. Therefore, when Yahweh imposes his wrath upon them, he was not unjust for doing so. Paul understood that wrath. Paul understood that that wrath was coming, and he expressed as much in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where Paul told the Romans that Yahweh would crush Satan under their feet shortly. These people that seek after justification in the law or in the circumcision, they were his enemies. They were infiltrators. They weren't his sheep because they didn't hear his voice, as he told them. Not 13 years after Paul wrote this epistle, the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem, and 1.1 million of the Judeans were reportedly slain. Here with Romans 3.9, Paul commences by asking a rhetorical question comparing those in Christ to the Judeans who were of the circumcision and kept the law, but who were not of the faith of Christ. And he says, what then? Are we better? Now some of those Judeans at this point were still Israelites. They weren't all Edomites. 
And Paul explains that in Romans chapter 9. What then? Are we better? Not at all. For we previously accused both Judeans and Greeks all with being at fault or under sin. Just as it is written that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none understanding. There is not one seeking after Yahweh. For Paul to assert that the Greeks whom he refers to were at fault or under sin, as the phrase is usually rendered, Paul must have considered that they were indeed of the dispersions of the children of Israel, because only Israel ever had the law, and therefore only Israel could have been held liable for sin under the law. <clears throat> Furthermore, since Paul is quoting Psalm 14 here in relation to Greeks, the words of that psalm only being applicable to the children of Israel. Paul must be including those same Greeks. Indeed, the Romans and several of the major Greek tribes did descend from the children of Israel. For those Greeks who did not, Paul distinguishes them wherever he encountered them, and we have records of that, where he encountered the Lycaonians in Acts chapter 14. They were not of the tribes of Israel. And where he encountered the Athenians at Acts chapter 17, they were not of the tribes of Israel. We discussed that at length in our Acts presentations last year. When Paul addressed those tribes, he didn't preach the gospel to them. He spoke to them on the theological level that we find in, for instance, say, Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 3, the children of Adam, that they should seek God, things that refer to the entire Adamic race, but that are apart from the special dispensation, if I have to use that term, which was to the children of Israel. We have just cited John chapter 8, where Christ told those who opposed him that they would die in their sins. This begs the question as to how the enemies of Christ, the Edomite infiltrators of Judea, could die in their sins since they were never given the law by God, in spite of having claimed it for themselves. How could that be? How could they die in their sins? The Apostle Peter mentions the angels that sinned long before the law was given to Israel. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 5 where he says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now sin is violation of God's laws. But sin was not imputed unless God's law was known. According to the plan of God, among men, his law was only made known to the children of Israel. That's stated explicitly in Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. It's also inferred in Amos 3.2 and in, in, in the entire history of Scripture. The law being given to Israel, which was a matter of the covenant relationship which Israel had with God, the children of Israel also received a means of propitiation for the violation of the law. 
first there was the ritual sacrifices, later there was the sacrifice in, of Christ, right? The purpose of the law was to make manifest the elect people of God. The Edomites, who were among God's enemies, they took his law upon themselves and made themselves cognizant of it. But they never had any propitiation when they violated it. As Paul says in Romans 3.20, through the law is knowledge of sin. Therefore, these enemies of God have condemned themselves. And Paul explains in Romans 3.19 that every mouth shall be stopped. Most King James Version cross-references acknowledge that Romans 3.11 is a citation of Psalm 14.2. And it is also cross-referenced to Psalm 53.2 and Ecclesiastes 7.20. It may just as easily be a paraphrase of statements found in Isaiah 41 verses 26 through 28, which is also presented as a dialogue, and I quote, who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say, he is righteous. Yeah, there is none that shows. There is none that declares. There is none that hears your words. The first shall say to Zion, behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word. So we see the same idea encapsulated by Paul in Romans 3, verses 9 through 11. Most King James Version cross-references, I'm sorry. However, from verses 12 through 18 of Romans chapter 3, those same cross-references offer as citations a mere smattering of verse fragments found in other Psalms or in other words of the prophet Isaiah. The references are hardly worth repeating since Paul is certainly not taking short passages from random, or short phrases, I should say, from random passages of Scripture in order to somehow mold his own account of the Word of God outside of its original context. If you check your King James Version or the other popular versions, if you check the cross-reference for Romans chapter 3, verses 12 through 18, that's what you'll see. You'll see one cross-reference that's a sentence to, or half a sentence to some verse in Psalms. Another cross-reference that's a sentence or half a sentence to some verse in Isaiah. Or maybe perhaps a couple of words match. And it's true that these phrases that Paul uses in, in Romans 3, 12 through 18, do appear throughout many other places in Psalms because David quite often used similar allegories and metaphors throughout the Psalms 
where he came across a particular subject or made reference to a particular entity. But Paul is certainly not taking these short phrases from random passages of Scripture. That's what the Judaized denominational Christians do. And the manufacturer of those cross-references unjustly attributes such a practice to Paul. Paul is not engaging in that practice. All these cross-references are wrong. Let's read the passage in question from verse 12 of Romans chapter 3. <laughs> they have all turned away. Together they have become unprofitable. There is none practicing kindness. There is not so much as one. Now that sentence right there in verse 12, that does appear in, in, in Psalm 14.3 in the King James Bible. And from verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have dealt treacherously. The poison of asps is under their lips, of which the mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Swift to their feet to shed blood. Ruin and suffering are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of Yahweh before their eyes. And that's perhaps eight phrases and those eight phrases in most Bibles are given eight different cross-references from portions of Psalms, from portions of Isaiah. In truth, Romans 3.11 is a paraphrase of the idea expressed in Psalm 14.1 and, as we pointed out, elsewhere in Scripture. However, Psalm 14.1, when we read the psalm, is describing the result of an action related at Psalm 14, verse 2, where God is depicted as looking down upon men and seeing no one who would seek righteousness. The rest of this passage from Romans 3.12 through Romans 3.18 is a, is a verbatim quote from Psalm 14.3 as it appears in the Greek Septuagint. The entire thing. The Greek it is almost identical except for a couple letters here and there and except for um, a couple of variations amongst the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. The entire five verses, six verses, seven verses, I'm sorry, I can't count, from, from verses 12 through 18, the entire seven verses is the entire body of Psalm 14.3 in the Septuagint. I'm going to read Psalm 14 from the Septuagint for the end, a Psalm of David. The full, now, now that for the end is a mistranslation, but that should be explained another time. For the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They have corrupted themselves and become abominable in their devices. There is none that does goodness. There is not even so much as one. Yahweh looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there were any that understood or sought after God. And here it's evident that we see that idea which Paul expressed in Romans 3, 9 to 11. 
They are all gone out of the way. They are together become good for nothing. There is none that does good, no, not one. Now, the Masoretic text version only has Psalm 14.3 up to that point. The rest of Psalm 14.3 in the Septuagint, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they've used deceit. The poison of asps is in their lips, is under their lips, I'm sorry, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's Psalm 14.3. In the Septuagint, that's Romans 3.12 through 18. Which is what Paul was quoting. So Paul wasn't taking eight little pieces from various parts of Scripture and, and splicing them together in this verse, that's the idea one may get when one checks the cross-references found in most editions of the Bible, which are based upon the Masoretic text, and it's missing that entire section. We will supply the rest of the psalm, of, of Psalm 14 from the Septuagint, which Paul did not cite in Romans. However, the rest of the psalm, the subject changes and addresses the enemies of God who are among God's people. From verse 4 of Psalm 14 in the Septuagint, will not all the workers of iniquity who eat up by people, will not all the workers of iniquity know who eat up my people as they would eat bread? They have not called upon the Lord. There were they alarmed with fear, where there was no fear. For God is in the righteous, for God is in the righteous. Now, Brenton Septuagint has generation. The word is the Greek word genea, and it means race. A generation would be all the people living at one time, as we understand the word. Well, that wouldn't make any sense when the workers of iniquity are, contra are contrasted to God's people, all the workers of iniquity who eat up my people. For God is in the righteous race, meaning his spirit dwells in them. Verse 6, he has shamed the counsel of the poor because Yahweh is his hope. Who will bring the salvation of Israel out of Zion? When Yahweh brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob exalt and Israel be glad. And once again, quoting such a large portion of this psalm in reference to both Judean and Greek, as he states, Paul is also informing us that both the Judeans, and the Greeks, which he refers to, are of the genetic children of Israel. Those of the remnant and those of the dispersion. Because of the words of the psalm, clearly and exclusively refer to the children of Israel. 
where Paul cites that they have all turned away. He cannot possibly be referring to anybody except the genetic children of Israel. That is our obligation. When a citation from the Old Testament is made by a New Testament writer to go back and to examine the context of the passage being quoted and examine how that passage applies in the New Testament, not from our own contrivance, but from the context of the original passage in the Old Testament. That's the Christian obligation. That's studying the scriptures, not to pervert them and apply them the way you think they should be applied, but to see how the word of God applies them, and that's the only way they should be applied. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says to those in the law, it speaks that every mouth shall be stopped and all the cosmos, or all the society, however, here the meaning seems to transcend what is immediately visible in the world, and all the cosmos will be brought under the judgment of Yahweh, since from the rituals of the law, not any flesh will be deemed acceptable in his sight. Indeed, through the law is knowledge of error, or sin, I'm going to give an exposition of my reasons for my translations of that word soon, not tonight. We have already exhibited the words of the prophets, which attest that Yahweh would no longer accept sacrifices and offerings under the law as propitiation for the sins of the children of Israel. The Judeans who cling to the law for their righteousness had knowledge of sin, but they had no propitiation for their sin. Christians submit themselves to the judgment of God, and they seek and shall obtain his mercy through Christ, knowing that they have sinned. Therefore, Christ is our propitiation, provided we're truly Christians, because Christ accepts only the children of Israel. From 1 John chapter 2, my children, I write these things to you in order that you do not do wrong. And if one should do wrong, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous Yahshua Christ. By the phrase, works of the law, this is the first time we encounter it in Paul's epistles, Paul refers to the rituals of the law. This is a matter of much confusion. That Paul refers to the rituals of the law is evident in several places. First, there is Numbers chapter 4, verse 47. We're explaining the method by which the Levites would be numbered for the census. Moses instructs that they count from 5 and 20 years old and upward 
till 50 years old. Everyone that goes in to the service of the works and the charge of the things that are carried in the tabernacle of witness. In that passage, the phrase service of the works describes the conduct of the works of the law, the conducts of those rituals which were ordained to be conducted by the Levites. At the end of Numbers chapter 8, we see an instruction that Levites over the age of 50, and I quote in part, shall not work any longer, shall not do works. Meaning that from that age, Levites should no longer be assigned the conduct of rituals such as the sacrifices. The word used in the Septuagint to describe such works is the same word which Paul uses in these passages. And we're going to talk about this at length because we're not going to leave room for misunderstanding. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is a phrase which is a title for one of the more widely known scrolls, which is usually identified as 4Q, meaning it came from the fourth cave at Qumran, M-M-T, three letters. This scroll is sometimes called the Sectarian Manifesto, and it is called that in the book, The Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation by Wise Abeg and Cook. In that volume, in an introduction to 4Q MMT, the book says that in all of antiquity, only the sectarian manifesto and Paul's letters to the Galatians and Romans discuss the connection between works and righteousness. Now, now of course, I would assert that while it was not phrased in the same manner, a major component of the ministry of Christ had the purpose of illustrating that same distinction as well as parts of the epistle of James. The introduction of the book, found on page 454, continues by explaining that MMT, the three letters, for the Hebrew words, Mixat Meas HaTorah is an acronym from the Hebrew words meaning some of the works of the law. The subject of the scroll is, of course, the rituals of the law. Therefore, we see that the phrase in Hebrew, Meas HaTorah, or works of the law, was used by others, in this case, the Qumran sect, at a time nearly contemporary to that of Paul in relation to the rituals of the Old Testament law. Now, in a separate article entitled, Paul, Works of the Law and MMT, a reference to those words, Mixat Meas HaTorah, in this article, which appeared in the November-December 1994 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review, 
one of the same men who translated that book that we just mentioned, The Dead Sea Scrolls, Martin Abegg, wrote that a few minutes, and this is his quote, a few minutes with the concordance of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, leaves little doubt that the Greek equivalent of mas or meas, ha-Torah, is likely ergon nomu. Ergon nomu is commonly translated in English versions of the New Testament as works of the law. This well-known Pauline phrase is found in Romans 3, Galatians 2, 3, and, and, and Galatians 2 and 3. For this reason, in order to eliminate any confusion, the phrase which literally means works of the law is translated as rituals of the law in the Christianian New Testament whenever it appears in these contexts. Because that's, what's Paul, that, that's what Paul is referring to. Now, now a lot of clowns, a lot of them that claim to be identity Christians, claim that Paul is teaching that we don't have to do anything as Christians, that we have no obligation as Christians. That's not what Paul's saying at all. What Paul's saying is that the rituals of the law have been done away with. It's that simple. That's all he's saying. These rituals, these, um, the compulsory feast-keeping, the sacrifices, the, the oblations, and other things related to the, the propitiation for sin. In, in the Old Testament, these things are now done away with. They are vain. Now, Paul says that we should keep the feast. We should keep the feast with the spirit of volunteerism in Christ. That's an entirely different aspect of our faith. We will talk about that also in, in this presentation at length. However, the same Paul said, let no man judge you concerning feasts, new moons, Sabbaths. And that's because these things were requirements of the law which are no longer necessary. And we see that where we quoted all of these prophets in the last two presentations of our epistles of Paul where Yahweh himself said in Hosea, in Jeremiah, in, in Daniel, in Isaiah, that these things were no longer pleasing to him. That these things, because Israel did not keep the law, that Israel would have no propitiation for sin in sacrifices and oblation, and that their feasts and their new moons and their Sabbaths were no longer pleasing to him. They were odious and hateful to him. Why? Because the children of Israel did not keep those things as they were expected to under the law as a nation of people in the right spirit, in a spirit of obedience. And that's very clear all throughout the Old Testament. So it's the rituals of the law that are done away with. And Paul says, verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, But now apart from the law, 
The justice of Yahweh is made known as attested by the law and the prophets. But justice of Yahweh through the faith of Yahshua Christ for all those who are believing there is no distinction. And here Paul succinctly expresses a summation of everything, of everything which we have insisted upon in evaluating his words thus far. There is no distinction between those Israelites of the remnant in Judea who retained the law and the circumcision and those Israelites of the dispersion who were returning to Yahweh in Christ. Now, there's nobody else in the context of the statement here. Paul is not saying that there's no distinction between Judeans and Chinamen or between Judeans and, and, and Mandingos. That's not what Paul is saying. The context demands that the understanding of the words be limited to Greeks and Judeans. Because those are the two parties that Paul is comparing all throughout these chapters. From Isaiah chapter 53, who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. How does the sheep go astray? That sheep had to be under that shepherd in the first place. You can't be a wolf wandering in from the jungles of South America to join the sheep. You weren't one of those who had gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of who? All we, like sheep, who have gone astray, who were under the shepherd in the first place. The report of the gospel was intended for all we like sheep who had gone astray and upon Yahshua Christ did Yahweh lay the iniquity of all those sheep who had gone astray. The sheep are exclusively the intended recipients of the gospel. It's not for. Wolves, goats, hyenas, jackals, pigs and dogs. 
As the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of Israel and Judah were occurring, the children of Israel were called to return to Yahweh their God by the prophets. From Jeremiah, chapter 4. If thou wilt return, now Jeremiah wrote, from about 630 B.C., maybe 640 B.C., I don't really remember. It was around there, up until the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. And even a little beyond that, because he recorded that destruction in 586 B.C. From Jeremiah chapter 4, If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith Yahweh, return unto me. This is a hundred years after the Assyrian deportations of Israel had begun. And some decades after they were completed. If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith Yahweh, return unto me. And if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then thou shalt not remove. From Isaiah chapter 44, from verse 21, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. And only those people were redeemed in Christ. In order to return to Yahweh, the children of Israel must accept and believe the gospel of Christ. Therefore, speaking of the punishment of Israel, the word of God says in Hosea chapter 2, for their mother, meaning the nation of Israel, has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, the other nations, that give me my bread, my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she she say, she say, I'm sorry, that's way too many S's in a row. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. Israel, the nation, shall return to Yahweh her God. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her sabbaths. There we have it. I will cause all her mirth to cease, 
her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Baleen, wherein she burned incense to them, that she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith Yahweh. Now Hosea chapter 2, the first part that we just read, has to do with the punishment of Israel for her whoredoms. The second part, which we're about to read, speaks of the reconciliation of Israel. And the word of God continues in that same chapter from where we just left off, from verse 14 of Hosea chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. Now, this is the woman who fled to the wilderness, who was nourished by the angels, the messengers of the Christian gospel, for, for, for 1260 years, as it is described in Revelation chapter 12, the woman with the 12 stars that bore the Christ child. And I will give her her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Now, the valley of Achor is where Achan, the prospective usurer with the Babylonian garment, that's where he was slain. The valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me Ishi, which means my husband, and shalt no more call me Bali, which means my Lord. For I will take away the names of Balim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely and I will betroth thee this is Yahweh speaking to Israel and I will betroth thee unto me forever yeah I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness, and in mercies. And I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith Yahweh, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, a reference to Israel deported in punishment. And I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people, a reference to Israel alienated from God. 
and they shall say, Thou art my God. All of these things are for the children of Israel, if for nobody else. The promise of the prophets is that Yahweh and Israel would be reconciled, and that Yahweh would betroth himself once again to Israel. He does so through Yahshua Christ. That is why John the Baptist described Christ as the bridegroom from John, from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 29. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. John the Baptist referring to Christ. But the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, is fulfilled. That is why Paul of Tarsus, addressing the Christian assembly at Corinth, understanding, as he told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that they were the descendants of the people of the Exodus, and they were. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2, he told them that I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Both John the Baptist and Paul of Tarsus were teaching the fulfillment of Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. This is the law and the prophets which Yahshua Christ came to fulfill. There will be a greater discussion of this from this aspect in Romans chapter 7, where we encounter a lengthy analogy on this subject by Paul himself. Romans 3.23, For all have done wrong and fall short of the honor of Yahweh. And indeed, all Israelites have sinned, and all Israelites require the mercy and propitiation found only in Christ for their salvation. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, For there is not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not. From the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15, verse 1, But thou, O God, art gracious and true, long-suffering and in mercy, ordering all things. For if we sin... We are thine, knowing thy power. But we will not sin, knowing that we are counted thine. For to know thee is perfect righteousness. Yeah, to know thy power is the root of immortality. And we shall discuss the Christian paradox concerning sin, forgiveness, and the law, where Paul himself further discusses it in Romans chapter 4. Yahweh willing, in our next presentation of Romans. Romans 3.24, being freely accepted by his favor through the redemption that is at the hands of Christ Yahshua, the free gift Paul talks about in many other passages. That Greek word "n" literally means in. Here I have rendered it idiomatically, at the hands of. 
It can mean in one's hands or within one's reach or power. From Isaiah chapter 52, shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, ye have sold yourselves for naught. and ye shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause, the two captivities of Israel, right? Egypt and Assyria. Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh? that my people is taken away for naught. They that rule over them, make them to howl, saith Yahweh. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore shall they know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. When Christ says, I am he in the gospel, the Pharisees, they understood what he was saying, and that's why they were depicted as being so upset about it, so revulsed by it. The idea that this man was basically saying that he was God without saying that he was God. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, thy God reigns. The gospel message is clearly the announcement of this redemption to the children of Israel, who sold themselves for naught and who would be redeemed without money. One place where the law of redemption is spelled, is spelled out in Scripture is in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25, speaking of a man sold into slavery. After that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him, which is why Christ was born of the race of Israel, so that he could be one of their brethren. Paul calls him the firstborn amongst many brethren. How could Christ be firstborn? Because Christ is Yahweh God. That's how he could be firstborn. 5,500 years perhaps after the creation of Adam. One of his brethren may redeem him. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him. Or any that is next of kin unto him of his family may redeem him. Or if he be able, he may redeem himself. The children of Israel sold themselves for naught and would be redeemed without money. 
The reasons why that was necessary shall indeed be made apparent as we progress through Paul's epistle to the Romans, especially in Romans chapter 7. That Yahweh is the Redeemer of Israel is mentioned at least a dozen or so times in the Old Testament, especially in Jeremiah and Isaiah, but also in Psalms and Proverbs. David calls him my Redeemer on more than one occasion. From Jeremiah chapter 50, from verse 33, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together, and all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. Yahweh of hosts is his name. He shall thoroughly plead their cause, that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. From Isaiah chapter 49, from verse 7, Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, not the Redeemer of the world, not the Redeemer of any other peoples, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh, who is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee, speaking to the children of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, the people of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, go forth to them that are in darkness, the people alienated from Yahweh their God, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all the high places. Paul quotes from that same passage from verse 8 of Isaiah 49 in his second epistle to the Corinthians. From Jeremiah chapter 31, in that same chapter where the explicit promise of a new covenant with Israel is found, we see this from verse 10. Hear the word of Yahweh, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel, that's why he's addressing O ye nations, that's why he's addressing the isles afar off, because that's where Israel is scattered. He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Oh, we like sheep had gone astray. If you're not a vet shepherd in the first place, you're not one of those sheep that have gone astray. You have no part with Christ. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul attests, and when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those 
subject to law, that we would recover the position of sons. And because you are sons, you have to be a son in the first place, Yahweh has dispatched the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Father, Father. There is no place in Scripture where we can find redemption for anyone other than the children of Israel, because everyone else is irrelevant in that context. Verse 25, Romans chapter 3. Whom Yahweh set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood for display of his justice by means of the pretermission of forthcoming errors. We're going to talk about that word at length. By the tolerance of Yahweh, for the display of his justice in the present times. For he is just and accepting of him that is from the faith of Yahshua. Redemption was one facet of the passion of the Christ, and propitiation is another. These two facets converge in Paul's epistle in Romans chapter 7. We have already cited the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 56, where it relates to the propitiation for sin which was in Christ. In Daniel chapter 9, in another Messianic prophecy, from verse 24, we see the purpose of the Christ was to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. This does not mean that men would be able to cease from sin, but that sin would no longer be imputed to Israel, which we shall discuss where Paul makes the same assertion in Romans chapter 4. In this regard... <coughs> There was another misunderstanding which must be explained here concerning the word forthcoming as it appears here in verse 25. So that word, the King James simply has past, past sins, as if the forgiveness of sins which is in Christ is only for sins which occurred prior to his passion, which is exactly how Many fools have interpreted this passage. If Paul had meant this, that Christ only came to forgive past sins, then how could Paul himself look for such forgiveness if he sins? Yet Paul explained in Romans chapter 7 that sin dwells in him, in his members, and therefore he was weak to prevent himself from sinning. Since all men sin, as Paul himself says here, then according to the popular translations of this passage, only those who sin before the cross of Christ are saved, and the entire revelation of Yahshua Christ speaking of the future is for naught, since we are all evidently doomed to the lake of fire. However, the Apostle John assures us that if we sin, we meaning if we are of the children of Israel, 
that if we sin, we have an advocate in Yahshua Christ. If we sin, and therefore we have an advocate in Christ, then Paul cannot be intending to describe only past sins here in Romans 3.25. So what does it mean? That's why I translated it for its coming. But I didn't just make that up. Among many others, there is another example in James chapter 5, from verse 15, where he says, And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and Yahweh shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. And on the verse 19, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one converts him, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now how could this happen after the resurrection, which is when James wrote these words, if Christ came only for the remission of past sins, as most translations render Romans 3.25. May I be arrogant, arrogant enough to say that it's another case where most translations are wrong. There are two Greek words to consider in this phrase, which is rendered by means of the pretermission of forthcoming errors. Two Greek words must be discussed here. One's pretty minor. The word paresis is a noun derived from the verb pariemi and the verb progeganoton is from a form of the verb progenomahi. The word paresis is defined by Liddell and Scott as a letting go or a remission. And they only cite the New Testament as their authority, which usually means it didn't appear in classical Greek. In such cases, if, as a translator, I am not entirely happy with the definition of a noun or an adjective, where that noun or adjective is derived from a verb, then I assert the prerogative of examining the meaning of the original verb and using that as a model for translating the noun or the adjective. That, that's a common um, method of translation I've employed. It's probably in a dozen or so places in the Christogenian New Testament. In this instance, the result is not significantly different. However, I thought it opportune to use this, this example to explain the methodology. The verb pariemi is to let drop beside, or at the side, or to let fall, to pass by, to pass over, to leave out, or, more importantly to our context here, to pass unnoticed, to disregard, or to let alone. And examples are given in Liddell and Scott, where the verb was used in equivalence to the Latin word pretermitere, which is the word for which we get the English word pretermission. In English, pretermission has the same meaning. It means to disregard intentionally 
or allow to pass unnoticed or unmentioned. That definition of this word and Paul's reasons for choosing this verb, that this, I'm sorry, this noun, paresis, from the verb pariemi, are therefore realized in his remarks concerning the imputation of sin in Romans chapter 4, where Paul quotes from Psalm 32, the words of David, where it says, Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh will not impute sin. And I'll give a much fuller demonstration of that passage when we get to Romans chapter 4 next week. Yahweh willing. The verb pro gegonotone, pro gegonotone, it's, it's a tongue twister, I apologize. Pro gegonotone is a perfect active genitive plural participle, so it's in the perfect tense. A pro ginomahi, Strong's number 4266. Liddell and Scott primarily define proginomahi as to come forward. That's important. To be born before or to exist before. So we could just say, oh, that's past sins. But that's not really what it's saying, and we will see that. It can be used as former or of events as a substantive, it's been used as things of old time, past events, things in the past. However, it is an issue of Christian doctrine to know that these sins which were committed by the children of Adam throughout the ages were foreknown by Yahweh their God. Now, we certainly shouldn't understand that in the sense that he actually approves of those sins. He very certainly does not approve of sin. However, Yahweh being God, he can't help but to know of the sins, the errors of men that are going to happen in the future. There's an example of the foreknowledge of Israel's sin in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I'll read from verse 1. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all nations, where Yahweh thy God has driven thee. Well, this is Deuteronomy. They're not even established in Palestine yet. And they're going to be driven among all nations for their sins, for the blessings and the curses, the curses being the result of disobedience. Yahweh foresaw that disobedience. And Moses says in verse 3 of that passage, that then Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations where Yahweh thy God has scattered thee. Another promise of the regathering of Israel and Israel alone. Israel was scattered into many nations in punishment. When Israel chooses obedience, Israel shall be gathered to Christ. 
Until then, the sins of Israel are indeed forgiven. There is an ongoing forgiveness of sins in Christ until when Israel is gathered to him. That's the message of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, upon Israel's repentance. And this Paul himself, again, will explain in the chapters to come. Among other words and phrases, the word degenotone, alone, without the prefix pro, which primarily means before or in front of, could be used to signify something past. And Paul used similar forms of the word in this tense in Romans 6.5, Romans 11.25, and elsewhere. Paul used, Paul may just as well have used gegenotone by itself without the prefix pro, because here the word is pro-gegenotone. He may have used gegenotone by itself to signify past here, if that is what he really meant. In his Greek-English lexicon, Joseph Thayer notes a usage for the word pro-gegenotone. In Homer, in the Iliad, where he says that it means that they came into view, that something is to come into view, and that's the context in which Homer uses the word, to signify something which is come into view. The large ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon cites the same example as well as others, showing that the word in the past tense describes something which came into sight. The sins of men were known by God before the foundation of the world. And therefore, Peter says that Christ was a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of of the world, 1 Peter 1.20. If, if the sins of men came into sight with Yahweh before men even existed, then for that reason, Yahshua Christ was foreordained, as Peter tells us, to be a propitiation for those forthcoming sins those sins which before those sins which before the creation of man had come into the sight of God. So that might be a little windy, but that's the reason for the translation of this word as forthcoming in Romans 3.25. That's what the word means. We have references to support it. And the translation is assuredly correct in the context of Scripture. From Zechariah chapter 8, verse 13, And it shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and ye shall be a blessing. Fear not, 
but let your hands be strong. Just another passage which tells us that all of these things are for the genetic children of Israel. Verse 27, Romans chapter 3. Where then is the reason to boast? It has been excluded. Through what sort of law? Of the rituals? No, but through a law of faith. We therefore conclude by reasoning a man to be accepted by faith apart from the rituals of the law. From Deuteronomy chapter 10, from Brenton Septuagint, Thou shalt fear Yahweh thy God, and serve him, and shalt cleave to him, and shalt swear by his name. He is thy boast, and he, he is thy God who has wrought in the midst of thee these great and glorious things which thine eyes have seen. That passage is for edification purposes. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed God, and he was justified, and his righteousness was manifest apart from any law. We should therefore also believe as Abraham did, which is what the Christian faith truly is to believe God and the certainty of his promises to our fathers. Verse 29. Is, is Yahweh of the Judeans only and not of the nations? Yeah, also of the nations, seeing that it is Yahweh alone who will accept the circumcised from faith and the uncircumcised through faith, through the faith. This is yet another passage which the universalists love to take out of context. What nations are Paul talking about? Could it be that Paul is talking about specific nations? Or is he talking about any nations in general? It's the context of the biblical promises which define the faith that Paul refers to in verses 27 and 28. Since the faith is also the faith of Abraham, which Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, which is coming shortly, then the nations which Paul refers to must be in accordance with what Abraham had faith in. Because the term faith of Abraham must include what Abraham believed. That term refers to substance and not to degree. The, the denominational churches like to define that term as if it, it, it refers to a degree of faith, and they ignore the substance of Abraham's faith. For an understanding of what Abraham believed, of what the faith of Abraham is, we have to examine what Abraham was promised. From Genesis chapter 17, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and now thou shalt be a father of many nations, neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, 
but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations I have made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. The faith of Abraham was that his offspring would become many nations, and that those nations would come from him, from out of him, from out of his loins. That is where seed comes from. That's the only place seed comes from, in men and women. And seed is the word used to describe those nations throughout the rest of Scripture. The story of Abraham's immediate descendants relates how these promises were funneled down to Jacob in spite of Ishmael and Esau and the others. And Yahweh repeats them to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, verses 10 and 11. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nations and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. In turn, blessing his sons, Jacob especially blessed the sons of Joseph with similar promises. In Genesis chapter 48, And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put my right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Then Jacob blessed all of his sons together, as it is recorded in Genesis chapter 49. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in last days. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable is water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wettest up to thy father's bed, and defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. Now that term, last days, I must interject, is a Hebrew idiom, which means the future, what shall befall you in the future. The blessings of the twelve tribes. Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty, 
are in their habitations. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So don't look for a nation of Simeon or a nation of Levi. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. The skeptic shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall be the gathering of the people. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. That didn't happen in Palestine. And he shall be for a haven of ships. Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at last. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. That didn't happen in Palestine. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He gives goodly words. Joseph is a fruitful bow, even a fruitful bow by a well, whose branches run over the wall. Make a note of that when we read the next set of blessings from Moses to the 12 tribes. The blessings of my father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on a crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is it that their father spoke to them and blessed them, everyone according to his blessing. He blessed them. As it is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 33, similar blessings were dispensed upon the twelve tribes by Moses. Let Reuben live and not die, and let not his men be few. They were among the first deported by the Assyrians. Hear, Yahweh, the voice of Judah, and bring him unto his people. And of Levi he said, Let thy Thummim and thy Urim be with thy Holy One, whom thou didst prove at Massah, and with them, and with whom thou didst strive, strive at the waters of Meribah. And of Benjamin he said, The beloved of Yahweh shall dwell in safety by him. And of Joseph he said, His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. That's Joseph, the fruitful bow, whose, whose branches run over the walls. They are the tens of thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in thy going out, and Issachar, in thy tents. They shall call the people under the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness. For they shall suck the abundance of the seas. That doesn't mean the Dead Sea. And of treasures hidden in the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed be he that enlargeth Gad. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's wealth. He shall leap from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, Naphtali, satisfied with, with favor and full with the blessing of Yahweh, possess thou the west and the south. And that didn't happen in Palestine. 
And of Asher he said, Let Asher be blessed with children, let him be acceptable to his brethren, and let him dip his foot in oil. Asher virtually disappears in Scripture. Most of these tribes virtually disappear in Scripture. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by Yahweh, the shield of thy help, who is the sword of thy excellency. And thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. And none of that describes Jews. Now I understand that it's rather cryptic in places, but the children of Israel were to become many nations. All the tribes were blessed, even if there's hardly any mention of them in Scripture after the division of the land in the book of in the book of Joshua. And of many of these tribes, there is hardly any mention of them in Scripture after that time. But that doesn't mean the tribes disappear, not by any means. The Apostle James directed his singular epistle to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Paul of Tarsus reckoned the children of Israel as twelve tribes, describing them as the recipients of the promising Christ in Acts chapter 26. 30 years after the resurrection. There's no change. The basis for Paul's ministry was his knowledge of where those tribes were. And those are the nations to whom he carried the gospel. Those are the nations to which he refers here in Romans chapter 3. And the proof is throughout his epistles. As we've already seen here in Romans, time and again, through these first three chapters of Romans, that Paul fully understood that he was addressing a portion of the dispersions of the ancient children of Israel. One example of the fulfillment of these things, the scepter of Judah is indeed apparent in ancient history with these same Romans. We have already asserted that the Romans descended from the Trojans, who in turn descended primarily from the Zara branch of the tribe of Judah. Strabo says of the Trojans that they waxed so strong from a small beginning that they became kings of kings. That's Geography, Book 12, Chapter 8. Paragraph 7. And Strabo describes the Trojan royal dynasties which ruled over all the related peoples, the Carians, the Lycians, the Mysians, the Lelegas, and the Calicians. These were the tribes of the Phoenicians who were making colonies throughout Anatolia and the Mediterranean not long after the Exodus. They all took Trojan princes. They voluntarily took Trojan princes to rule over them. The Roman Caesars claim their own descent from these same Trojan princes, namely from Ahenius, the son of Priam. The Trojans were seen throughout ancient history as 
legitimate royalty. Even in the Middle Ages, there were families claiming Trojan lineage to legitimize their claim to rule over their nations. The Merovingians were one of those families. The Trojans were seen throughout ancient history as legitimate royalty, even centuries after their defeat by the damning Greeks and the, the destruction of Troy. The origins of many of the Greek tribes descended from Israel are also fully apparent in history. Christian identity is the faith of Abraham. Because Christian identity is a belief in the promises made to Abraham. It's that simple. Where we then study history and archaeology in order to examine the substance which reveals the truth of those promises. Finally, Romans 3.31 do we then nullify the law by faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. Christians, those who claim to be of Christ, have no, have, I'm sorry, have an obligation to be obedient to Christ if indeed they are Christians. So the law is done away with, and we establish the law, right? That's the Christian message concerning the law. We will prove that in subsequent chapters of this presentation. We're not under the law, but we establish the law. We should volunteer ourselves to the law. That's the Christian responsibility. Paul is not asserting that we should establish the Levitical law. In fact, another reason why Abraham was accounted righteous is explained in Genesis 26.5. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And this was several centuries before the Levitical law. Therefore, it is apparent that there are laws of God which transcend the Levitical law, not that the Levitical law is bad, we should certainly use the moral precepts in the Levitical law as our guide. But the sacrifices, the oblations, the, 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 the feasts, and all the other aspects of the Levitical law, as we've shown by the words of the prophets, we are no longer bound to those things. In Hebrews chapter 7, Paul explains that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Having nothing to do with Levi, he says, for the priesthood being changed, from necessity a change of law happens also. For he whom these things are spoken has part in a different tribe from which no one has made an offering at the altar.
The end of the ritual offerings was also foretold in the prophets, as we have already presented at length here. After further explaining the nature of Christ as an Melchizedek priest and the inability of rituals to do away with sin, in Hebrews chapter 8, Paul cited the very same prophecy of Jeremiah, which he also referred to here in Romans chapter 2 in relation to the promise of a new covenant where he quotes the prophecy which says, For this is the covenant which I will devise with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. Giving my laws into their minds, I will also inscribe them upon their hearts, and I will be for a God to them, and they shall be for a people to me. Paul quotes that same portion of Jeremiah once again in Hebrews chapter 10, where he proceeds to explain how it was that Christ stood as a sacrifice in place of all the ritual sacrifices of the Levitical law. He then explains in verse 19 of that chapter, Therefore, brethren, having liberty into the entrance of the holy places in the blood of Yahshua, by a new and living away through the veil which he has consecrated for us, that is, of his flesh, and the great priest over the household of Yahweh, we should approach with a true heart in certainty of faith, having purified the hearts from a wicked conscience, and having washed the body in pure water, that water being the word of God in Christ, according to Paul in Ephesians 5.26. We should hold fast the profession of the expectation without wavering, for he making the promise is trustworthy, and we should consider one another in regard to stimulation of love and good deeds, which aren't really codified in the Levitical law. Not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together, as is a habit with some, but encouraging, and by so much more as you see the day approaching. Joshua Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Then he issued one new commandment, something which is apparent in the law, but is not explicitly mandated, where he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. John 13, 34. The moral laws of God are summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's not, they're not spelled out there. They're summarized there. And it is these which Christ professes that men must keep if they seek righteousness. In John chapter 14, he explained, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. These commandments which he refers to are made manifest in the gospel. For instance, in Matthew chapter 5, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, 
till heaven and earth pass, one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then in Matthew chapter 19, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He says unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And from Matthew chapter 22, and we see that last one, that's not part of the Ten Commandments, but it does appear in Scripture. And from Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy, all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Because your brother's made in the image of God, right? You're a Adamic brother. Thou shalt love thy neighbor. Now that word neighbor comes ultimately from a Hebrew term which means basically a fellow flock member. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, Paul gives many instructions throughout his epistles. And he tells us that fornicators, homosexuals, wine-bibbers, that people such as that are not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Well, those things aren't in the Ten Commandments. They're in the Levitical law. Well, the moral concepts of the Levitical law we should use as a model for righteousness. That's why God gave the Levitical law and the laws in Deuteronomy, which mirror it. That's why he gave them to the children of Israel. The rituals, the sacrifices, the feasts, we're not bound to those things. But the moral law of God the moral law, laws of God are immutable. They cannot be done away with. All Christians have an obligation to seek and uphold them. In the Revelation, three times in the Revelation, the commandments of God are upheld in the word of, words of Christ. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 chapter 14, verse 12, chapter 22, verse 14. Now, in the subsequent chapters of Romans, Paul draws a distinction between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. Paul is not wrong for doing so. Christ often conflicted with the Pharisees over this same thing. He was breaking the letter of the law on the Sabbath, 
he was transcending the spirit of the law of the Sabbath without a doubt. Helping your brother out of a pit, the Pharisees forbade that. Healing the sick, the Pharisees forbade that. Christ was transcending the Sabbath law for the good of his brethren. So there's a just distinction between the spiritual law and the letter of the law. Over and above these things, in Isaiah chapter 56, we see that the eunuch and the dry tree, those are metaphors for Israel in the captivity, Israelites in the captivity, who take it upon themselves to keep the Sabbaths of God and the precepts of his covenant, that those people who take these things upon themselves to keep are given a place even above that of sons and daughters. Of course, they have to be sons and daughters in the first place, but they're given a place above that because they voluntarily seek to keep the statutes of God, the commandments of God. That's the model for Christians. Next week, Romans chapter 4. Tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, explaining to Seedline, part 18. I'm kind of at odds with myself right now. I have two options for the topic of discussion. It'll be announced sometime during the day tomorrow on Christogenia. I'm sure either of them will be as good as I could do. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.